Hey y'all, it's Thursday and I'm co-hosting the show today. So excited and we'll be talking to 2020 Democratic presidential candidate John Hickenlooper and then I'm sitting down with actor Diane Guerrero and we're going to talk about Jane the Virgin, of course. So I missed that finale because of the debates, but we're going to talk about the debates later in the show. We'll see you on the timeline. Missed so much because of the debates. So much. <laughs> Sleep. Sleep. Peace. Relaxation. All's my life. The wine I should have been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, she's Sylvia Obel, and you are watching AM to DM. And I am a little tired. I don't know how you got through anything without wine. <laughs> I don't know how I, I, I always need alcohol during the debates. <laughs> it was actually, I have to say, it was, uh, it was an intentional calculus because both coupled with the being tired, having to stay up Definitely. late, having to be here early. If I drink wine, like today, I, I just would not be here. Like the lights would be on, nobody would be home. So yeah, mm. what did you miss because you had to watch these debates? I miss sleep, peace, a lot of things I named <laughs> there, you know. But I also, you know, I'm not a big, there was none of my favorite TV shows on, but I think somebody on Twitter had a TV show, right? Yes, they, they were sad about. Sure did. Here's a tweet from Issy. It should be illegal for the debates to be on at the same time the Jane the Virgin series finale. So. Yeah, so there was Jane the Virgin. The Bachelorette was on Tuesday. It they was. were pissed about they that. They were pissed. Which is like, <laughs> you know, there are so many debates, and it just seems like there's never a good time, especially when it's back-to-back -back two nights in a row. Yeah. Four, out, four, it was actually like five hours of our lives that we devoted to this. And it was been like only a month since the last debate. But I also do think it's interesting that a lot of TV networks didn't, chose not to postpone their new episodes or something as big as a finale because the presidential debates, as if they were like, it's not big enough, or there's going to be 30 more, 155 more Which, candidates to go. Exactly. You know, kind of a thing. And I have to say, <laughs> even though, despite watching the first debate and uh, knowing these candidates for the purposes of doing this job, there were still candidates who I was like, I think I'm seeing your face for the first time in my life. You can't <laughs> tell me that they don't pop up a new candidate every here and there. Because let me I'm like, were you... Were you there last time I saw this debate? I don't know. I'm not so sure. Which just, you know, it makes me long for uh, a debate stage when we can go a little bit more in depth on some of these topics with the people who will really be in the game. Yeah, so. for sure. Well, you know what's bad when you're just sad about not being able to continue a binge that will be right there waiting for you when it's over, unlike the network shows. Says so much. But let's take it to the timeline. <laughs> what did you miss because you watched the debate? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm So much, so much. Well, here's a tweet from Charles P. Pierce. By the way, if the Republican All-Stars in 2016 had gone at Trump as hard as the folks are going at Biden tonight, we might have been spared the nightmare. Joining us now to talk about part two of the Dem debate is Molly Hensley-Clancy. Hey, Molly. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. Biden keeps getting the brunt of the attacks at these Democratic debates, as we said. Um, so what did you make of the strategy by the other candidates to target him? I mean, it makes complete sense. He's the front runner right now. He's leading in the polls. Somehow, a lot of the rest of the candidates, they have to get into the next debate. And the best way to do that is by landing a, an effective hit on, on Joe Biden. Um, and you saw it happen to Kamala Harris in the last debate where she really had a moment uh, that was like a breakout moment for her. I mean, she was, you know, not she was doing OK in the polls. But after that, that exchange with Biden over busing, she really rocketed to the forefront of a lot of people's awareness. Um, so it, ma it makes total sense to me. Yeah. And he was probably ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, who else do you think got 
attacked last night, more, like after Biden. We know Biden's number one, right? Who else yeah. do you think was getting a lot of punches thrown at them yesterday? Oh, Kamala got, I would say like the first 20 minutes of the debate, which were on about healthcare, it was a lot of different candidates attacking Kamala Harris from all different sides. You know, she just re- released this new healthcare plan. It's her version of Medicare for all. It's a little bit more moderate than Bernie Sanders' version. And so you saw Biden coming at her from sort of the center you saw Bill de Blasio and Tulsi Gabbard coming at her from the left. Uh, and she, you know, she really just got, she got a lot of uh, attacks early on. And then later on too, uh, Tulsi Gabbard went after her for her criminal justice record. Now, I saw a lot of people uh, joking on Twitter that Warren won both nights of the debate. Um, so which night did you think was stronger? How did the second night do uh, compared with the first? Oh man, it's really hard to compare them. I think the first night you saw a lot of people talking about the debate was about ideology. It was about, you know, progressivism versus moderates and uh, everyone was kind of, you know, debating uh, the issues. And then the second night got a lot more personal. I think it kind of depends. Honestly, you know, they were both really chaotic and uh, at times hard to follow. Um, So it's, it's really hard to say who kind of rose above the fray um, in either night. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing that was interesting was, you know, the Eric Garner protesters crashed the debate and um, a lot of people were asking de Blasio, why didn't he just fire the cop? And he actually chose that stage to say that he was going, that justice should be coming for them, which surprised a lot of people. Were you surprised by that declaration on the stage or what was your reaction to the statement and the protesters? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was was quite surprising. I think, first of all, you saw them interrupting, mostly interrupting Cory Booker, uh, during his opening speech, not Bill de Blasio. Um, and so that was that was a little bit hard to follow. I, I'm not really sure what to make of, of Bill de Bla- what Bill de Blasio chose to say. Um, I, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Obviously, you know, the DOJ declined to, you know, press charges and, and there's still a little bit more to go. But I think it was it was kind of a confusing moment. Um, I did think it was interesting that uh, it seemed like in the audience actually started applauding for the protesters, at least that's what it looked like to us, um, which is not something you you always see. So I think during, you know, when they interrupted uh, Cory Booker, so I think there was sort of a, a recognition that this was like an issue that the people wanted talked about. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure what's what's going to happen. Yeah. Now, when asked about uh, racism, few of the candidates actually proposed uh, anything tangible. Um, all that Gillibrand does was did was define white privilege, and that seemed to get an applause from people. Um, why is the bar just so low? Well, I mean, it's even lower than you said, because they actually they weren't asked about racism. They were asked about the racial divide. Um, That's what CNN chose to how CNN chose to phrase it on both nights, which, you know, I saw a lot of criticism of people saying when you when you present it as a a racial divide, you're kind of saying racism is a both sides thing, um, which it's not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the bar the bar is really low. I think that that literally having a white candidate say the phrase white privilege was was a big step. Um, and and I think that, you know, there there is something to be said for her, you know, not, you know, sometimes these these questions get shifted onto candidates of color. Um, you know, she acknowledged that oftentimes Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, they're the ones who are supposed to answer for this. And how are you going to deal with racism? And, and obviously, it's, it's an issue for white people. Um, so that was relatively a big moment. But yeah, I mean, the bar is low, partly because CNN, you know, chooses to ask the question that way. Um, it, it doesn't set up a, a great, a great uh, situation. Well, you mentioned CNN's role in choosing the questions. And Raquel Willis tweeted, 
Over the course of these two Dem debate nights, you had a cis gay man running for president, a cis gay man moderating the questions, a cis gay man doing follow-up interviews for the debates, and no discussion of what these candidates have to offer LGBTQ plus folks. What a waste. Uh, this was among uh, a lot of the criticism uh, for the moderators. Um, did you think the criticism of them has been fair? What do you make of it? I mean, some of it's fair, some of it's not. I think that at times it felt very forced the way they were kind of trying to impose conflict. Um, you saw them kind of pitting them against each other in a way that, that felt artificial. At the same time, um, I actually think we got some pretty substantive policy debates around issues like healthcare and criminal justice. Um, so it, at least they were kind of get, getting the candidates to talk about their policies. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, it's a, it's a tricky proposition. They're going to get to try it many more times. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure whether whether they're going to improve, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that was brought up yesterday by Cory Booker, who actually throws the most polite shade I've ever seen in my life. I didn't even know. Yeah, the cool <laughs> be shady with manners. With, but with he kind of, of with a smile. It was like they were throwing jabs, but smiling at each other, him and Biden. And I was like, OK, I think that's what's happening. But he called um, Biden out for always Choose, picking and choosing when to lean on Obama's name or his administration or his policies. Um, what did you think? Do you think that Biden should stop doing that since it seems to be an easy jabbing point for a lot of his opponents? Like you pick and choose when you want to bring Obama up? Yeah, it's hard to say. The, the thing is that like Obama's really popular among Democrats and Biden is mostly known for his relationship to Obama. So while it might sort of bug the candidates that he keeps doing that, I don't know that it's necessarily a problem with voters because Democratic voters really like Obama. And I think you saw last night, you know, a lot of the candidates, it turned a little bit into an attack on Obama's record and partly because of Biden being up there. And that can be dangerous because voters, voters tend to like Obama's record, at least Democrats do. I want to go back and unpack uh, one thing a little bit further that we mentioned earlier, which was uh, Tulsi Gabbard's attack on Kamala Harris, um, specifically over uh, folks who are incarcerated for uh, marijuana. Um, can you talk a little bit about like why a lot of people are remarking that it was uh, an effective attack um, and it seemed to help Gabbard? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Kamala Harris came into this debate as you know, one of the, the people who's leading in the polls. Um, and at the, up until this point, she really hadn't been challenged on her record as a prosecutor and her record on criminal justice. And you've, I mean, by other candidates, it's something you hear in the media all the time. Um, so I think it, it made sense for, for Gabbard, who is a candidate who's you know, trying to get into the next debate to go after Harris on these issues. Um, I, I think it's, you know, the, the line there, you know, there is a, a, a famous video of, of Senator Harris kind of laughing off the question of whether marijuana is going to be legalized. And, you know, now she's obviously backing marijuana legalization. So there's a lot to sort of, re you know, reconcile there between her past positions and, and the stance she's now taking on criminal justice, which, which is pretty progressive. Uh, whether it, you know, works for, for Tulsi, I'm not sure. You saw immediately after the debate, Kamala kind of hit her back about her support for Assad. Um, you know, we also know that, that Tulsi has a lot of issues with her, you know, her past sort of uh, dealing with the LGBT community, um, support of conversion therapy, possibly. So, you know, whether, whether it launches Gabbard is, is kind of an open question. But I think for Harris, she's going to have to keep facing these attacks probably on, the criminal just, on her criminal justice record. Yes, for sure. I mean, if nothing else, it made me remember Tulsi's name. I was yeah, like, oh, for sure. I was like, oh, she was oh. Like, you know, it, it, it okay. was all over Twitter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, um. so there's that. But thank you so much for joining us, Molly, and helping us unpack them sure. night two. <laughs>
Night. Well, we enjoyed Jaden Report's debate recap so much yesterday that we had to bring him back to give us his take on night two. Good morning, Jaden. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Oh, no. Thank you for joining us. Thank and I, you, Yeah. I got to yeah. start off by asking, who do you think won on Dem Debate night two? Well, I can't really personally, like I said uh, a lot of times, that I can't personally state who I thought won. But I can say the American people, from what I saw at the CNN poll from the American people, is that the American people thought that uh, some of the big winners included Cory Booker. Uh, Kamala Harris was probably one of the winners that they said. And I just saw that, and I think that those are probably some of our top candidates to watch out for, definitely, uh, from last night's poll. Yeah, and which of the two nights did you find to be the most impressive debate between night one and night two? I think uh, yesterday night was the most impressive. Um, There was just a lot of controversy, a lot of, you know, bickering. And, yeah, we like to see that. But then at the times, we really want to see what's getting done. Um, So I saw that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders last night, uh, uh, not last night, uh, Monday night, uh, they were, when they were debating, uh, you could see they had a friendship, but it, uh, clear, it was clear that they were competition. All right. Well, you have been uh, staying very busy during these past couple of days. I know you also interviewed Tim Ryan. What is next for you uh, between this debate and the next one? Uh, what's next for me, I believe, would be to just track the next campaign, track the campaign trail uh, for the next few months and really seeing how these candidates develop, change and grow. Um, really, in Houston, I want to see a lot of different improvements out of all the candidates. So that's really what I'm tracking is the campaign trail. Um, if there's anyone who stops near our city or in our city, I definitely want to come to their campaign event and track what they're saying and get that out to the American people. Thank you so much, Jaden. Thanks for joining us. We stand a young legend, and you are that. So much. <laughs> so much. <laughs> I literally just... I Same. The future. Same. I, I same. have faith in the future anytime I hear Jaden speak. Same, same. <laughs> I'm like, come on the show. If you're ever in New York, stop by. Take Please my job. Like, <laughs> same, 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 same. Anyway, he's probably going to get pulled to perform. But it's fine. Anyway, let's take it to the timeline. Let us know who you think did the best during last night's Dem debate using the hashtag am to dm All right, well, moving along. Earlier this week, we covered a story about parents in Illinois who were giving up custody of their kids so that they'd be eligible for more financial aid. These families were taking aid intended to go to needy students, but the story underscored the extremes families go to to pay for college. BuzzFeed News reporter Vanessa Wong took a deeper look at how over 40 families are paying for college, like by withdrawing money early from retirement plans, moving in with relatives, and taking out a second mortgage on mortgages on homes. And she joins us now. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, thanks for having me. You asked the Busby community about how they're coming up with tuition money. What did you find out? Uh, as you said, families are going to really extreme lengths to pay for uh, their children's education, or um, teens are taking out extreme loans to pay for their own college educations. And, you know, we've heard... I, there were some really heartbreaking stories in there. I think the one that resonated most with readers so far was one about a woman whose um, parents took out a 401k loan to help pay for her tuition and through um, you know, some sort of set of circumstances ended up homeless during the time when she was in college and she felt very responsible for like the destitution that they were in afterwards. Um, you hear a lot of stories about um, families, you know, everyone in the family pitching in, taking on multiple jobs, Um, One contributor said that between him, his parents, um, they had seven jobs while he was in college and still weren't able to 
um, prevent him from taking out private loans. Um, so this is, it's just a lot, you know, it's a lot for anyone to deal with before they're old enough to drink. Yeah, it is uh, <laughs> definitely a lot. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the measures that folks resorted to, like taking a lot of student loan debt, uh, even though uh, they were really, really young. Um, were there any kind of trends or commonalities that you saw from everyone who responded? Loans. It's just loans. I mean, I think, and the, the the shocking thing for a lot of families, I think, is that even though they're middle-income families, they still don't qualify for some federal loans. So, um, you know, if you're a parent who already has mortgage payments, payments on their cars, in some cases still paying off your own student loans, um, it's very difficult for you to be able to save for your children's college education in the future or to contribute while they're still in school, which leads to those students taking out private loans in some cases. Yeah. I feel like during, you know, now, do you think it's less taboo for people and families to be talking about their struggles with student loans and not being able to pay for their children? Because I feel like when I was in school, it was because, you know, it wasn't we weren't so far apart from people being able to do that. But now tuition has gotten so high that is it becoming less taboo because who can really afford it? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's why, um, I mean, there are uh, several several things to consider. One is, what are you really getting out of this? I mean, what are you majoring? What do you hope to get out of this possible five- to six-figure debt that you're going to be taking out um, to go to school? Um, and also, like you said, like the astronomical cost of it really makes you weigh the benefits and the cost of making this decision. I mean, there are a lot of people who wrote in and said that, you know, College was my choice. I decided, you know, as a responsible adult to take out these loans. So, you know, they were owning it. But I think even um, if you're in that position, it's hard to imagine how that those those decisions will trickle down in your life decades later when you're still, you know, when you're like 30 and you're still paying off your loans. I mean, this is and there are people who put hundreds of dollars towards paying off their loans and still end up making only a small dent in it. Yeah, me. Yeah, I know. No, that's the thing. It's like this, this, I mean, these, here, reading all these responses resonates so much with me because I'm like, I'm one of those teen. I was 18 years old. I signed all that paperwork. 14 years later, here I am still paying my loans in nine years or something. Hopefully I'll be finished paying them. I had to take heart medication like, because I, when I signed yeah. my loan because I literally thought like I was going to have a heart attack when yeah. I saw that number. Yeah, but like, what do you think all of this says about just the education system in the U.S. more broadly uh, and just the absolute extremes that we go to at such young ages to try to pay just to get an education so like hopefully you can get a job? Right. I mean, well, there obviously seems to be um, an issue with the cost of higher education right now. And I know that, you know, there's an argument that most people don't pay the sticker price for tuition and room and board. Um, regardless, you know, if you're paying, even with scholarships, even with loans, um, even with grants, like people end up uh, in a very difficult situation from going to college. And I think, um, you know, it's just time to think about, like, what solutions are there? Like, is it's probably some combination of controlling the cost of college. Maybe there's some policy element to it as well. We're seeing a lot of the Democratic candidates like Sanders and Warren really making this a centerpiece of their platform. Um, and I think it's not something that should be disregarded as families or, or teenagers making irresponsible decisions. This isn't like, well, I gambled away my savings, so like, right. I, you know, I'm kind of screwed now. Like, I think they're trying to make responsible decisions to um, give them the best shot at success in the future. And no one knows what job they're going to get after they graduate, you know? And I think we've seen um, over the last decade since the recession, a lot of people graduating into very low-paying hourly jobs. And you just can't 
you can't predict those things when you're going to school. So, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff to think about, the cost of college, how it's funded, um, and also like what our employment outlook is. Okay, well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us and for this story. It's really, it's no, like, hits home. It hits it's home. home. It's it hits home. home, but it's still such an issue and it's important. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the timeline. How are you paying for college? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. You know, I just, it's like I can feel my blood starting to boil because I start to think back of like, when I was a teenager, I, I was really rolling the dice. Like, I don't know if you feel this way, but I really had no idea if I would be able to get a job. And I, and I did it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I had a scholarship that covered like 90% of my tuition, but then the, an undergrad room and board, but it was grad school that got me. And I had to really do my master's in like one year because I could barely yeah. afford the second. Yeah. And it is something that at least in my time, I think, especially for us, like, it was our... Parents thought, like, oh, yeah, you have to go to college. Like, to me, college was not ever presented as an option. Yeah, yeah. So then for it to be an uh, expensive non-option that yeah. I had to handle yeah. all my loans for is... It's a lot. It's a, it's a tough. It's, it's, it's tough. tough. It's tough. Well, later on, I'm sitting down with Orange is the New Black actor Diane Guerrero. But up next, uh, we'll be talking to Governor John Hickenlooper uh, about the election. Yes. Yes. Another president. Yes. <laughs> Welcome back to The Stakes 2020. Joining us today is former Colorado governor and 2020 presidential candidate, John Hickenlooper. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here with us. Excuse me, thank you. I mean, I'm on BuzzFeed. I'm You're on, you are on BuzzFeed. I, I, I could, I could tie, you know, loosen my tie. You, say, you definitely can. Be our guest. I don't want to go quite that far. <laughs> I am ready for president. <laughs> oh, you're right. You are. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. All right, well, I want to get started. Um, I want to start off by reading this tweet from Nikki Schwab, uh, which is about the debate on Tuesday. Um, she says, what a night. I loved it, says Hickenlooper. Was he also under the impression this thing would only last two hours? So because you didn't get a lot of airtime, <laughs> did you feel like it lasted so long? You know, you, you can't answer the questions they don't ask you. I mean, at yeah. a certain point, what everybody wants, I think it's universal. You know, you want to be the one who gets to do the 60-second answer. And if they ask somebody else and then they ask you kind of for the response, you get 30 seconds. At 30 seconds, you know, what can you do? You wave your arm a couple times, right? So it did seem like it was still a long time, though. You're standing for two and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah, was, the shoe support has to be <laughs> serious stuff. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you also had a moment with Bernie Sanders. And Andrew Kaczynski tweeted, they definitely did the wave. <laughs> do you regret starting the wave with Bernie? It, well, you know, I was telling, I said, you know, if, if, if you're going to hold on to this Medicare for all, you might as well FedEx the election to, to Donald Trump. And, and, and Bernie Sanders over there, and I caught him out of the corner of my eye. He's going, wow. And I said, Senator Sanders, you can't, you can do that if you want. And he goes, oh, I will. And, and all of a sudden, we were in split screen at that time. So the whole world sees us, you know, it looks like. We're doing the wave. Doing yeah. Cheerleaders doing the wave. When, when you walk off stage and you check Twitter, are you just like, oh my gosh, this, like, I did not <laughs> yes. expect this moment to right, go this viral. Is, this You're is like, not this exactly is the thing. The, but, you know, from, from my point of view, I think Democrats do run a risk if we stay too far to the left, right? If we're trying to guarantee everybody a government job in, in the Green New Deal or or we're going to say, we say we're going to take 180,000, take private insurance from 180 million people. That's, I mean, the, the, you know, in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, those swing states, they're not going to go along with that. And we run the risk of, you know, of, of really giving Trump the election. That's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I know you guys are supposed to be impartial. 
<laughs> yeah, well, well, I do want to get into some of the issues uh, that were brought up uh, during the debate. And, uh, and some, I know you got a lot of attention for this moment with Bernie Sanders. Um, but the Denver Post said that you failed to stand out in the scrum um, during the debate. So how are you planning on staying relevant in the race? Well, you know, uh, and I've never been a great debater, right? It's just not, not something I studied or wanted to be good at or practiced. I mean, I've, I've certainly practiced it in the, in the last six months more than a little. Uh, but I think that what I've done in Colorado, you know, we got to near universal health care coverage. For the last three years, we've been the number one economy in the country and, and, and brought everyone along, right? Our rural economy is one of the top rural economies in the country. I look at that ability to bring people together and actually get stuff done, right? We beat the NRA with tough new gun laws. We're the only purple state to pass universal background checks. I'm kind of hoping at some point the, the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire are going to say, huh, there's somebody out there who's actually done what everyone else is just talking about. So I'm still 2% in the polls, so that hasn't quite <laughs> happened at the level I want. But, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep pushing it because I don't see anyone else out there who's actually done what they say they want to do. Yeah, well, I think you're, you're getting at uh, what perhaps sets you apart from the rest of the field. Is there one specific policy or idea that you think sets you apart? Well, I think that, you know, we took, when I got elected, we were 40th in job creation. And we're now, for the last three years, according to U.S. News and World Report, inferior media, I understand. But we're the number one economy in the country. And what we've done is we've created an apprenticeship program. You know, all the kids that don't go to college, 65% of our kids are never going to get a four-year degree. And for decades, we've been turning our back on them, making them feel like second-class citizens. And I get, I understand that, you know, college is an important thing. But 65% of our kids, so we have an apprenticeship program so they can work the last three years of high school, uh, work at a bank, and insurance company. It's not just for trades. We also have a skills-based learning system so that we can make sure the kids have the right skills. We, what we've done in Colorado is the national model. There are 22 other states working on our, modeling our apprenticeship program, 26 other states uh, modeling our skills-based program. I think that's, if you look at what automation and artificial intelligence is going to do to the workplace, the disruption, mm. what we've done in Colorado is a real template of what the entire country could do. And we've got to get after it. So, I, you know, I feel like I have spent more time involved in that, you know, that, that, that opportunity for people. The, the, how do you give them the skills so that they can create their own vision of, a, of the American dream? Yeah. Well, um, when asked about why you are the best nominee to heal the racial divide in America, you said, I think the job is incumbent on any one of us to make the convincing case that we can deliver an urban agenda that represents progress in schools. Can you clarify what you meant, particularly when you said urban agenda? Well, in too many places, you look at the, the, the leverage points of bias. It's housing. Uh, it's jobs but it's schools. And, you know, our schools are the most potent economic development uh, and, and anti-poverty program we could ever have. And if we don't make sure that our schools give every kid the same opportunity, right, to, to get the skills, but also to, to excel and achieve if they, if they want to go to college, they, they've got to have a real chance of making it. If we don't do that, then we're never going to live up to this, this more perfect union vision that, that our constitutional founders imagined, right? That, ev that we're a place where everyone is created equal. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this fall, we saw so much excitement around the number of women elected to Congress, in particular, um, some of the women of color who were elected to Congress. So uh, why do you think that uh, we should elect a white man again to be president? <laughs> well, you know, the, the diversity of, of not just the, the Democratic Party, but the country mm -hmm. is the most powerful thing we have. And I think... 
you know, you look at some of the women and the, uh, the people of color that are running for president. Talk about talent, right? I think of the 24 people that are running for president, 20 of them probably would be great presidents. I can guarantee you they'd be a lot better than the present inhabitant of the White House. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm running just because, because I have this experience of bringing people together and actually being able to get things done. And people are bringing all different kinds of skills and experiences that, to, the, to the table on this. That's why it makes it, I mean, this whole primary process, process it's America. In, in its most granular, pure form, this is what we should all be so proud of. Yeah. And earlier you were talking about how some of the things that you are the only candidate who has done certain things. And one of those things is that you're the only people, one of the only people running for president who has had directly to deal with the aftermath of a mass shooting that became a national crisis. What did you learn from the experience and how would you change how, if you were president, how would you change how the federal government handles it for sure. future situations? Well, you know, that, that when we had the shooting in the Aurora movie theater um, in July of 2012, and I went out there to the mobile command center uh, the next morning. I was, you know, with the mayor of Aurora. And as the governor, we, I saw that video from the, from the crime scene, the first, the first images. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's trauma. Yeah. I, I will have that with me for the rest of my life. Uh, and we, you know, we took a couple months to mourn. We didn't mm -hmm. go out and start talking about legislation. But when we got to it, we, we passed universal background checks. Uh, we limited the size of magazine capacities. I mean, it took us eight months, right? If you look at all the people running for president that are, that are Congress people and senators, you add up all their time in Washington, it's 173 years. And, and what have they gotten done? Nothing. What's it going to take for Washington to actually, you know, put on their big boy pants and, and get out there and do stuff? And I don't know, I find it incredibly frustrating. I, I guarantee you as president, I would work going from state to state to create momentum. And I saw firsthand how you get it done in a swing state, in a purple state. Yeah. And it's doable. And I think once you get enough states passing universal background checks, then that's how you create a national law. Yeah. Well, here's a tweet from you last night. Pour yourself a good brew and enjoy tonight's debate. I'm looking forward to hearing my fellow candidates on the debate stage tonight. One of your Democratic oppon opponents, Jay Inslee, is also a big fan of beer. And we've asked him the same question that we're about to ask you, which is, would you give up beer if it meant helping impact climate change? Yeah. I mean, I, I, probably, I think it's fair to say that I've washed over 500,000 pint glasses. I've served more beer than any presidential candidate in the history of the world. I mean, that's a stat. <laughs> but but, but, but if, if climate change is the single most, the single largest danger that we face, not just for us, but it's for our children and our grandchildren. We're within 10 or 12 years of damaging this planet irreversibly. So yeah, I'd give up beer and that's, you know, I, I'd give up almost anything, right? To, I, I think this is how we, what we all be, have to be thinking of, we'll do anything to save the planet. Yeah. Well, before we go, I want to get to one more tweet from you. Uh, so you tweeted this with the hashtag GameFace2020. <laughs> we got to ask you, can you can you give us a game face before uh, you go back on the trail? <laughs> you ready? Yep. Oh. There it is. <laughs> Thank you for indulging us. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for joining us. I uh, appreciate it. <laughs> Have a good day. And up next, it is time for Fire Tweets. Yeah.
Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets, and shall we just get into it? Let's go. You tweeted, started an argument with, are you dumb? Automatically adds validity to your point. <laughs> I have to agree. I mean, I wish somebody like last night's debate would have been like, are you dumb? Oh, Instant my gosh. donation from me. Just for being there you go. There you go. There's a little <laughs> tip. Zoe, you tweeted, grandmas on their porch still waving at y'all from 25 miles down the road. <laughs> Just the, all the emotions that go through her face. It's a it's gift. So perfect. That gift, that video. Yeah. What a gift to this nation. <laughs> <laughs> Lil Sasquatch, you tweeted, kids at sleepover. White dad at 3 a.m. It's time to shut it down. I feel like I have been subject to this before. The dad who's like, all right, kids, time to shut it down. I feel like there's always like a to- gesture to it, like, <laughs> shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it anyway. down. All right, next one. Ellie, you tweeted, why is it that sometimes coffee fixes my tired, but other times I drink it and I'm still tired, but faster? And I have to say, <laughs> this one really hits home with me as an anxious person. Coffee just makes me more anxious. I'm just anxious and tired all the time. I still haven't figured out coffee. It's been 30 years, so I don't know. Anyway, tweet of the day, you ready? Yep. Tweet today comes from Brooke. I hate how your family stops giving you money on your birthday as you get older. Like, I need it more now than I did when I was seven, Susan. I'm starving. <laughs> Susan! I'm Susan. Susan! I'm hungry. I got student loans. Okay. Susan, where's the cash? <laughs> Texas. So much. All right, well, we're going to find Susan <laughs> after this. But coming up, I'm sitting down with actor Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black. But up next, Stephanie speaks with Britt Peterson about America's thirst for true crime stories. Ooh. Susan, where are you? Sarah Weinman tweeted, I have been waiting for a feature that looks at the true crime industrial complex through the vantage point and participation of victims' families. And Britt Peterson more than delivers. That is for sure. Freelance writer Britt Peterson joins me now to discuss her latest piece for the Washington Post titled Victims, Families, and America's Thirst for True Crime Stories. Britt, thank you so much for coming on. I loved your piece. Thank you so much for having me. So your piece is set at CrimeCon, which is exactly what it sounds, but for people who don't know what it is, can you talk a little bit about what exactly you saw there? So essentially, there's been this huge boom in true crime media, podcasts, TV shows over the last 10 years. Um, and CrimeCon is this like young kind of upstart convention that exists to bring everyone together. You know, podcast hosts, like Dateline hosts, um, you know, Nancy Grace was there. And then also increasingly, like large numbers of true crime fans. Um, so it was a weekend in New Orleans at the Hilton Um And it was just this like bonanza of true crime. I mean, you know, there are candles with Keith Morrison's face, you know, Dateline host Keith Morrison's face on them that you could buy. There were like true crime t-shirts. It's exactly what you would imagine. Your piece centered around another person who was there named Bill Thomas, whose sister Kathy was murdered decades ago in a series of murders that are known as the Colonial Parkway Murders, which ironically I first learned about from a true crime podcast, which kind of brought it all back around to me. So he was there advocating for media to pay attention to his sister's story, which I thought was a really interesting aspect. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Bill Thomas is this amazing person who has spent decades working to keep attention focused on Kathy's case. Um, You know, it's essentially a cold case at this point. The FBI is still pursuing leads, but it's been 33 years and there hasn't been any major breakthroughs um, since then. 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, Bill worked for many years um, in the entertainment industry, you know, also advocating um, on behalf of entertainment professionals. He was a lobbyist and a communications um, uh, expert. So he has all these skills that he has brought to bear on Kathy's case, and he has been very aggressive and tireless um, in, in bringing her case out. Um, but what I found so interesting, and I think what drew me into the story, was this idea that in this universe of true crime, you kind of need to have a media strategy as a family member of someone who is murdered. And, and that seems so bizarre to me. You know, you're grieving, you're mourning this person that you love. And on top of that, you're, you know, like calling Dateline and you're trying to get on podcasts and, 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 and doing these things that seem so bizarre as a grieving family member. Yeah, a lot of these family members, I think, are torn between they don't love some of the aspects of the true crime complex that is forming, but they know that crimes have been brought back into the public consciousness because of true crime media, so they want their story to be shared. I'm interested in the dynamic between people who are there truly as fans of true crime. I kind of cringe when I read some of your descriptions of outfits people were wearing and yeah. people like Bill Thomas, who have experienced this so firsthand. Is that awkward at all? I, you know, I mean, Bill Thomas has been doing this for so long that he is, he's, he's weirdly comfortable with it. But I mean, I saw some very bizarre moments. Uh, you know, I was talking to Bill, um, at, you know, in a convention room um, and this woman walked by and she's wearing like an entire tank dress covered with serial killer mugshots, you know, just this like top to bottom. And here I am standing with this person whose sister was possibly killed by a serial killer. And he looks over and his face just drops. You know, you can see how emotional this is for him. And he, I, I mean, it's, there is a real range in terms of true crime media um, from the very ethically produced investigative podcasts and, and shows to a much more kind of schlocky soap opera-y, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, form. Um, and I think that is often reflected in the fan culture. There are fans who are deeply respectful, very knowledgeable, very careful, um, and will come up and ask questions and be very respectful to family members. And then there are those who kind of find it fun. And, and I found that really disturbing, to be honest. Yeah, I know as a journalist and someone who enjoys learning about true crime, I feel like there definitely is a fine line between being respectful and wanting to help victims versus just sensationalizing it. Well, Britt, thank you so much for joining me. And I would encourage anyone watching us right now to read your piece. It was fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Don't go away. Up next, Alex sits down with the star of Orange is the New Black, Diane Guerrero. Here's a tweet from Charlie. Maritza Ramos deserved better. That's it. That's the tweet. And I'm so excited to be sitting down with Diane Guerrero, the actor, author, and activist who plays her on Orange is the New Black. Welcome. Thank you for being here with Thank me. Thank you for having me. So I want to give a little teeny tiny spoiler alert okay. to our viewers because we're going to be talking about the new season of Orange is the New Black. Um, but I have to say your character returns for this season and what happens to her is extremely affecting. Um, so did you anticipate uh, this storyline at all just from uh, the beginning of the series and to where she ended up? Gosh, no. Um, I mean, I, I like to say that I found my voice on Orange is a New Black just because, I mean, how could you not be inspired by so many amazing women who are telling their truth um, and sharing these powerful stories? And of course, you can't help but connecting um, to such human stories because obviously I'm a human and I'm experiencing all of this at the same time. 
But no, I, I didn't think, I mean, but I, I'm so glad that we, that we did tackle uh, the storyline because it's obviously much needed. And I mean, obviously it's a part of, of the criminal justice system and, and we're in jail. So yeah. it's good yeah. to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it's always, the show has always been so timely. You mentioned the criminal justice system. And of course this season, uh, a good deal uh, takes place in a nice detention center yeah. um, as well. But there's not just one story, right? There's not just one kind of story that we're seeing in the detention center. Yeah. Why was it important to show that these stories are not a monolith? Well, I mean, I think that a, a big problem that we've had always, but especially now, is this lack of empathy. And, you know, when you go into this work, you don't, you know, you think, well, what, what kind of, what am I doing? What, what, what is it that I'm doing to make a difference? And sometimes you don't think that these stories really help people understand what kind of what we're dealing with um, and some of the response that I've had with this storyline and, and Maritza's storyline is that people are actually being affected. And so when we share stories like this, we can have better conversations. We can, we are inspired to do more research. We empathize with um, the human experience. And that's what we have always done on Orange. And that has always been our mission is to humanize people that have been labeled as criminals, right? And what we do is so easily throw these people away. And when we don't understand what kind of circumstances have put them in there and what Orange does so wonderfully is that we share those circumstances and those uh, systemic barriers that lead people to incarceration. Mm. Uh, You mentioned just seeing the outpouring of responses to your character, also to Blanca. What is it like when you are seeing these responses come in? I was so surprised. Um, I mean, I've, I've talked about uh, immigration um, and, and the need for reform f- for, a, you know, a, a little bit now. And I was still so afraid to talk about this, even on this show. I just worried about how people would connect to it or how people would respond. I really wanted to do this story justice. Um, but it's been overwhelming. People have been empathizing and, under, and, and just, I mean, regardless of what they see, on the news every day, children in cages, families being separated, they are still affected by seeing the story play out on Orange. And it's, it's just wonderful and it, it's so redeeming. Mm. Um, I think you said earlier that you, this helped you kind of find your own voice. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, you wrote in your own book, In the Country We Love, uh, about how your parents and your brother were deported when you were just 14 years old. Um, does working on such a political project like Orange is the New Black um, help inspire you or at least make you feel affirmed when you're sharing your own story? Absolutely. When you have a community of people who are supportive who are understanding of, of your experience, you are emboldened by that, um, by, by that love and that, and that compassion that you want to also make a difference and you want to use your voice in this way that, um, that you see others using their voice, their voices. So, um, of course, I was inspired by, by all, obviously the stories that we were telling, um, but also the incredible people we were working with. As someone who experienced a form of family separation personally, do you think the people implementing these policies understand the human cost? They don't care. They don't care because profit is put over people, and uh, and and we're so we're so easily driven by that that we forget that these are real human lives. And the more we put it away or disguise uh, our intentions by just labeling someone a criminal 
um, it, it's easy to forget or even try to see how it really affects real families. And I, that's, that's the reason we're, we're sharing these stories. That's the reason we're, 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 we did this show is that so people can understand a little bit better of what people go through in real life. Um, like I said, the, the, the lack of empathy is rampant. And that needs to change. Mm, that needs to change. Well, you also uh, adapted your story into a children's book. Um, why is it so important to, to talk to kids about these issues and to reach them? Well, these are, this is, these are, this is our future, yeah. right? These kids are our future. I saw that you interviewed, uh, that you, or he was a correspondent, this, this young man. Yeah. These are the kind of people we need making decisions in our country. You know, I'd rather elect this kid than you know a lot of the people <laughs> who, I, who I see running, um, or obviously this current administration. But um, it, it's 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 so important. Wait, are, is this live? Yeah, <laughs> I forgot the question. This is great. Oh, it's okay. Just why it's important to reach kids. Why it's so, important to reach yeah. kids? Because, yeah, they're our future, and obviously, kids are so affected. Um, like I was at 14, so affected um, by this immigration system, by just the system in general. And we need to equip uh, kids with this knowledge so that they can use this to empower themselves as they get older and help our communities. Well, one of the things you mentioned is Jaden, who we were talking to, was just so Jayden. amazing to talk. Yeah, oh so amazing gosh. to talk to about the debate and everything. I was so impressed. Yeah. Was there? And, and speaking of the debate, um, was there anything that you, a way that you would like to see the candidates handle criminal justice or education? How would you like to see them handle those issues? I'd like them to, well, I'd like to see more emphasis on education, the healthcare, all of that over, uh, over, over incarcerating people. I mean, that is what we've relied on heavily in this country and more so now with this, uh, with this administration. Obviously, this is not anything new. Putting people in jail has been our business and it continues to be, and that needs to change. And I mean, I think that people are, I think that the only upside of this is that people are realizing how much this country relies on, in, on incarceration because we're incarcerating children. Mm-hmm. Now it's it's gotten to that we're like, let's just put kids in jail. That's that's going to be our way. That's not the way. That's not the solution. We need to prioritize people and not profit. Mm. Well, we got to talk about the Jane the Virgin finale before you go. Um, What was it like saying goodbye to your character and and the cast and the crew for the last time? Honestly, like people ask me, was it bittersweet? None of it was bitter because, I mean, I got to be on a show on both these shows, Orange and Jane the Virgin, um, from, uh, you know, from their beginning. And um, I was just so, I think the word that comes to mind is gratitude. Um, Getting to work with these wonderful people, being on groundbreaking shows. I mean, it's so telling of like who I am. You know, I've always been like a warrior of justice, (laughs) you know, and and it's sort of like a blessing and a curse in a way because it just means more work for me um, to to have to worry about these issues all the time and and, and that kind of being what defines me. But... Um, as I get older, as I grow into these roles and I, and I become family with these people, it just, it's also worth it. Hmm. Well, I think that that is a great note to end our conversation yes. on. Thank you so much for joining Thank me. Thank you. You can stream all seven seasons of Orange is the New Black on Netflix. I know that's what I'll be doing. And season one of Doom Patrol on DC Universe, another next time. Gotta come back to we chat about that one, about right? That. But up next, we have more AM to DM. this about the newly uncovered racist remarks made by the former president Ronald Reagan. The new Reagan tapes 
are ugly, but not surprising to a lot of black Americans. Eugene Scott, political reporter at the Washington Post, joins me now. Hi, Eugene. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. Good. So how were the tapes uncovered and what can Reagan be heard saying on them? Well, it appears that uh, the Nixon Library had the tapes uh, for a while. Uh, They were uh, under some type of agreement about not making them go public. And Tim Naftali, uh, the former director of the Nixon uh, Library, who I featured in my piece, wrote a, a piece for The Atlantic in detail about how they got them and why they didn't go public until uh, now. Uh, But one of the most alarming things on the tapes was uh, Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California at the time, uh, telling Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, uh, that some of the delegates to the United Nations from African countries uh, were were monkeys, uh, using a stereotype against black people that is rooted in the idea that black people are less than human and primitive Um, and not sophisticated, uh, which is a common stereotype, especially among people among, uh, within the more more far right aspects of our uh, political uh, spectrum. And so um, it was news, it was shocking, I think, to people, um, mainly because it was recorded and it was just really blatant. I mean, Reagan is kind of known for um, just subliminally making racist statements and uh, supporting policies according to his critics. And so for him to be so direct uh, was, just, was just pretty unheard of until now. Mm. Well, Michael Walks tweeted, recording of, race, of Ronald Reagan's being racist drops, me, pretends to be shocked. <laughs> why do you think, you know, despite you saying that it's never been blatant like this, why do you think some black people are not surprised by this discovery at all? Well, we know that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, defeated Jimmy Carter uh, in 1980 uh, by appealing to the white working class voters very much in the same way that President Trump does. He really spoke to their cultural anxieties, um, so much so that he used he originated the phrase make America great again. Um, And it was a response in part to. Uh, you know, the 70s becoming being this period with more um, focus on expanding the rights for people from marginalized communities, be they black or Latino or queer or uh, just underrepresented in general. Um, And what that looked like when uh, Reagan got in office was uh, passing really harsh policies related to the war on drugs uh, that disproportionately impacted uh, black and Latino people in inner cities. Um, Also, we know that the concept of a welfare queen, this mythological idea of uh, usually black, unemployed, uh, poorly educated uh, women uh, robbing the government of taxpayer dollars to support um, multiple kids, often by different fathers. Uh, That whole idea was one that Reagan campaigned on to win support uh, from white voters. And so black Americans who were around during that time um, or just even, you know, slightly aware of history, know that uh, Ronald Reagan was not someone who consistently uh, would have sided with the idea that black lives matter. Yeah. And um, how do these tapes contradict the way Reagan is revered by the present day Republican Party and how they choose to remember his administration? Yeah. And just before explaining that, I one thing I discovered in writing this is, I mean, even even liberals kind of revere 
uh, Reagan. Um, we've had, you know, President Barack Obama just speak very positively about uh, Reagan in terms of Reaganomics and his impact on the economy. But um, in terms of the Republican Party, especially among the never Trump conservatives, uh, they hold Reagan up as this standard of decorum and class um, who knew time and place and was very sophisticated, something that, quite frankly, no one would say is true of uh, President Trump. And so people wish that things were more like um, what Republican leadership looked like in the early 80s. But um, I think Naftali's point uh, in his piece was that uh, philosophically, uh, Reagan and Trump are not as different as many people um, who think they are suggest. And not just Reagan and Trump, but Reagan and many people on the right um, when it comes to addressing issues of race. Um, you know, I, I, speaking of delegates from African countries being monkeys walking around with no shoes, uh, it's not that far off from the idea of African countries being shithole countries. And so um, I think when you look at history as a whole, um, what, what maybe Republican supporters of Reagan say is true about him uh, may not be as true as what the facts suggest. Mm. Well, thank you for joining us, Eugene. Up next, Thanks for having me. Up next, Alex and I read your tweets. Welcome back. It is time for At Us. But before we get to your tweets, I just got to say, Jaden is always making my day so much better. I want my child <laughs> just like Jaden. Just like him. If, if I had a choice, yeah. like, that's the one I would like to have with me. So he can explain politics to me as a grown woman <laughs> and, you know, just be cute along the way and just so smart and just... All, all the above. Honestly. All the above. All the above. Can't get over it. Well, we wanted to know who you thought won last night's debate. And my co-host Zach says, Elizabeth Warren. And mind you, that's because Elizabeth Warren wasn't even on stage last night. <laughs> I was like, that's a trick answer. <laughs> well, 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 well. Dale <laughs> tweeted this following our conversation about paying for college. My interest rate kept going up and I didn't even finish. Can I tell you the fastest way to ruin your day is to uh, look at the amount of your payments that are actually going to the principal balance versus the interest because it will ruin your day. So sure ruins mine every single time. Ugh, I'm stressed. All right. Every we'll day. leave it there. We'll so leave it there. Enough. Reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to our guests, Vanessa Wong, Jaden Jefferson, Britt Peterson, Eugene Scott, Governor Hickenlooper, and Diane Guerrero. Zach is still off because he got a 15 job. He's still off, but working his other job. Still working his other <laughs> job. So we will both be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day.